Hello, everyone, and welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You are listening to one of our return slot episodes, and tonight we're going to focus on 1998's Pie, directed by Darren Aronofsky, and Aronofsky's 2008 movie, The Wrestler, uh, starring Mickey Rourke. Uh, if you are new to this return slot concept, uh, we have decided that we are uh, once a month going to start focusing a little bit more on deep dives on particular movies. And the movies will usually consist of things that have not made lists because they either don't fit into a specific genre um, that we that we're going to cover. They're hard to classify uh, and and come up and put them on a list. Uh, they they wouldn't normally make a list because uh, Frank wouldn't put them on a list uh, mm. for one reason or another. But they still have some sort of merit or claim to them. Um, and then we're also going to start throwing in movies that have anniversaries to them. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, 25, 20 years, 35 years, etc. Uh, so both of these movies, ob- oddly enough, uh, have um, kind of anniversaries to them. But uh, I, th- I sent Frank a list the other night of what we would like to kind of start with first. And you chose these two. So yeah. um, why, why did you particularly want to talk about these? Uh, I thought it was interesting that it's um, two movies from the same director, one at 25 and one at 15. Um, and also because they're really like wildly uh, disparate films like there's i think that if you watch them with no foreknowledge and didn't know that they were directed by the same person you probably wouldn't be able to guess mm-hmm. um because there's so much difference to them um i think they're both interesting movies because they both were met with pretty high critical acclaim when they came out um both were like award award season darlings and Mm-hmm. Um, on a lot of year-end lists for you know famous reviewers um it's interesting because and we'll get into this more when we talk about the individual movies but um one of these movies i couldn't stand it and actually colored my opinion of this director for several years mm-hmm. um and the other one i thought was amazing the first time i saw it so um, really different opinion but neither movie i i have not seen either movie since my original watch of them Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd only ever seen either movie once. Um, so I was really curious to see how I would feel about these movies. Um, would I still like, could I find a better appreciation of the one? Would I find the other one is interesting? So, um, and just like, cause whoever, whatever, we already talked about what they are, but, yeah. um, I hated pie when it came out, couldn't stand it. And I love the wrestler. So yeah, and probably I'm trying to remember it won Sundance, I think, that year, right? Uh um, yeah, maybe. It was it was Aronofsky yeah, won Best Director at Sundance. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Which is so interesting to me, and we'll talk about that when we get into the movie. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know. But just I, I find it interesting because I think that being able to talk about um like compare a director's work against itself and Aronofsky is a really interesting dude because he's right there on the cusp of being in that group of like this, these great directors that started making movies in the nineties and Mm -hmm. achieved like really early critical acclaim and also have pretty strong um, fan bases in terms of people that are not only just like fans of movies, like whatever, like us, like who watch a lot of movies, but even more casual people when you talk to them have a great appreciation for some of their movies. Um, But you think about people like Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson, 
Um, yeah, I mean, Rushmore comes out the same year, right? Yeah. I mean, he obviously had Bottle Rocket before this, but I mean, like, still, like, and then P.T. Anderson a year before this is Boogie Nights with his big coming out, like, um, yeah. in his second movie, so yeah. But even then, like, Anderson had achieved some acclaim for Heart 8, and, sure. um, you know, Tarantino has Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction in the 90s, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's interesting to look at the career tracks of these people, um, who I kind of like all look at in sort of the same, those three in sort of the same vein in terms of being almost like sort of like the master class of like that generation of directors, like the people that you look at as being the most talented. And it's crazy because there's times where Aronofsky feels like he should be in that conversation, but he has such a fractured filmography and he goes such long periods of time between making movies and you can say the same thing about like tarantino because you know he goes sure you know sometimes like a decade i guess almost is that right at least like five or six years between films um but i feel like aronofsky at least to me is is not appreciated as much because he takes so many chances and it comes across like some of his stuff like um i don't know like the fountain maybe and mother um are kind of are polarizing in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and then he has movies like you know black swan and requiem for a dream that are just like beloved and yeah like really great movies i mean we like those movies a mm-hmm. lot and yeah critically acclaimed and it's just i don't know he's like he's really kind of an enigma when it comes to being a director because he makes it's like there's no consistency to what's going to come out but i also think that like every one of his movies is is pretty interesting to watch and even when i don't like them i still find something interesting in the concept behind what he's doing sure um and we'll talk a lot about that i think more with pie than with um the wrestler but but, yeah being such completely different films like it's just i think interesting to compare the two um, and sort of talk about Aronofsky just in general. So yeah, and and Aronofsky, you know, has a, I guess it's limited release right now. Um, yeah, in December. The whale. Um, yeah, coming out um with um Brendan Fraser and Sadie Sink. Yeah. Um, in it that's getting a lot of acclaim just because of Fraser's performance. <clears throat> um. So yeah, I mean he he's a he's a pretty interesting guy. I mean, I it feels like a lot of his movies are pretty technically sound. Uh, often to me it's um the stories behind them at times that are sure. you know the things that kind of like lower the the quality of the movie the only one i guess i haven't seen is noah um it's the russell crowe movie right it is yeah yeah um weird i yeah. guess yeah yeah so i should probably watch that at some point just to complete his filmography but <clears throat> yeah um definitely kind of like an interesting cat um how did you feel about mother overall like did you like that movie sure yeah i thought mother was 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 good yeah it's interesting his genre choices it's like um they do seem to kind of it's like we're going to talk about pie but it's like i see elements of some of that in requiem a couple years later and then it's like he moves into the fountain which is like this big kind of grand story and then it's like the wrestlers the smaller story right and but it's kind of like a drama and then there's black swan which 
is a horror like a psychological horror movie and then there's noah which is another kind of like epic kind of thing almost and then back to a psychological horror with um yeah. mother and it's and then a poor personal story and the whale like it's um he definitely has like a, a wheelhouse i guess but um it's it's interesting how he just kind of goes back and forth between different genres as well to me which is evidenced by this i think too like this i mean movies. to me I, I there's like i like requiem for a dream a lot but i think a large portion of that comes from the adaptation of the hubert selby jr story which is so strong um that he's pulling from that and it helps to kind of guide his filmmaking mm-hmm. um which i think matures him a lot between you know what he's doing in pie and what he does in requiem um and then yeah. the wrestler just like being such a personal story i think also because it allows him to focus on the performances which are the greatest part of that movie um as opposed to camera tricks or um, i don't know just his general uh proclivity to do just kind of weird shit in his movies i think mm-hmm. um it's interesting because when i was watching pie i thought this dude must have loved um david lynch when he was young because there's a lot of elements of eraser head and um elephant man in it to me that i see mm-hmm. and maybe that's just um whatever uh bias because of the fact that it's shot in black and white but he lists like Kurosawa and I don't know. It was a bunch of people that I just didn't see. Like, I don't see those elements in his movies. So I thought that was interesting that he's not, he doesn't openly claim like an affinity and like Lynch and. um, Well, one that does show up, I think in this movie, um, as we talk about it is um, um, Shinya um, Tsukamoto um, that did Tetsuo. Um, Oh yeah the iron man i there's definite elements that he's like taking from yeah that that movie that is true Um, but i also feel like there's i mean we talk about lynch probably way too much but i feel like in um tetsuo i feel like there's elements of eraser head yes yes elephant man that are like pulled in just in the way that certain shots are framed and um yeah just the the willingness to be kind of grotesque in terms of how the human body is filmed and how um kind of the idea of like bodily mutilation and i don't know like i i really do believe that both of those directors are influenced by um eraserhead in a lot of ways i think you're probably right um and i i think one of one of the many lessons through this podcast is uh how for for something that the average person somebody that the average person doesn't know how pervasive i think david lynch actually is um in terms of his influence among like so many directors in small ways or large ways um that's one of the things i've taken away is we end up i know that we have an obsession with him to some degree but i don't think it's unfounded the comparisons that we draw and the things that we see like i think he's extremely influential yeah more so than most people would give credit for but um since we're starting to talk about it already just let me quickly um pie um uh, stars um sean goulette as max cohen uh mark margolis is saul uh and ben shankman is lenny meyer 
Um, did you just quickly want to summarize this, Frank? Um, so Cohen is a um, number theorist and mathematician mm -hmm. who's obsessed with finding patterns in numbers and is trying to use it as a way to sort of rig the stock market in a lot of ways or at least like predict um stock prices so he can invest and earn a lot of money um uh, he suffers from a number of different uh maladies but has oh, <laughs> oh my you. goodness thank you allergy season all over um <laughs> all over your hands <laughs> uh like almost like a paranoid schizophrenia um has nervous twitches that come from his medical conditions, takes medicine to sort of suppress like those um, tics or seizure, mini seizures or whatever. Best friends with this man, the Margolis character, who's Saul, who's his uh, mentor, uh, who is a um, number theorist who was researching pie. And it basically drove him to have a stroke and kind of crippled him. So, um, they share ideas and thoughts. Um, Cohen is incredibly intense, unable to form emotional or personal attachments with other people easily, uh, even though there's people that live in his building that, are, that try to bring him out and try and like humanize him kind of. Um, so he meets the, I can't remember what the character's name, Lenny something, right? Lenny Meyer. Yep. Yeah, Lenny Meyer, uh, who's a Hasidic Jew that's into the Kabbalah that's also into number theory, but in the Kabbalistic sense of equating the numbers with the Jewish alphabet and trying to find like the biblical code with or not biblical because it's the Torah but um, the code that like unlocks the temple of God basically like the 216 letter name of God um, there's also a shadowy mega corporation that's trying to woo um, Cohen into working for them by offering him some super secret like mega chip i think they call it or something it's ridiculous but i guess that's 1998 for you <coughs> so going becomes increasingly unhinged as he researches this number and becomes obsessed with this 216 digit number that he feels like he finds um it eventually causes him to have a breakdown and then he performs um trep trepani i think is how you say it trepanning where he basically drills a hole in his head to let like shit mm -hmm. out and loses the ability to do complex um, math equations, but seems much happier and much calmer. So uh, filmed in what I read and I had I don't, I don't know this terminology, but um reverse black and white, um, I guess is like a filming technique or like a stock or whatever that gives the uh, the image like a grainy, really like dark texture to it. So it feels like dirtier. Um, I'm just going to put this criticism out there because it's really hard for me to watch this movie and I think it uh, this feels like a movie that was made by somebody who learned um, filmmaking techniques and influences from like 90s music videos like they watched like some Nine Inch Nails and some um, Prodigy videos and this is what they came up with because it's got a very I don't know unappealing style to me like i'm not a fan of the way this movie's filmed mm -hmm. uh, it feels very dated and very purposefully like pretentious at times but then at other times there's some really brilliant scenes in this movie and shots and 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's particularly there's a, a recurring incident where when Cohen is on um, a subway platform, he sees a man standing across from him, semi hidden by a pillar, who's bleeding from his hand, um, and who at one point like quickly turns to notice Cohen as the subway goes by. Really effectively shot. Um, it's very kind of creepy, and there's a lot of elements of like the sort of supernatural in this movie. Um, mystical maybe is a better way to put mm-hmm. it, but maybe sometimes um, dangerously mystical or uh, places that are unwise for someone to dabble kind of. And they sort of play that off too, where they sort of um, tie that in with the idea of the Kabbalistic nature of um, these Hasidic Jews who are looking for the name of God and who feel that they're entitled to be given the name of God from this man who's, you know, barely a Jew, kind of the way they, they look at him and unworthy of, like, hearing the name. Um, I think it's it's interesting because it's it predates a lot of the number theory movies that came out for a while. So, like, Conspiracy Theory, number 23. I mean, there's mm-hmm. several movies, um, 11, 11, 11, that deal with numerology and... Um, the obsession with numbers. There's another uh, shit. It's one of those Dybbuk movies, but I can't remember if it's called the Dybbuk or if it's the other one uh, that involves like a man getting involved with the, like a cast of Hasidic Jews who are really into the number theory yeah, and trying to that. find the name mm-hmm. of God. Um, so there's a lot of that that comes after this, but this is sort of, I don't know if trailblazing is the right word, but it's it's a really interesting concept as early as 98 to have it yeah definitely um i'm not a fan of the ugliness of the black and white like we talked about begotten when uh we went over yeah that that was also the tetsuo episode uh the avant-garde uh horror yeah i'm a god horror movies that's uh let's see 2021 october if anybody wanted to go back and see some of these things we're talking about and it's it's funny because i'm fine with begotten because I guess I can take the pretension because it's such a small movie in a lot of ways Hmm. and it doesn't pretend to be anything but just pretentious visual shock like scenes of shocking images and whatever um I mean the plot is very buried and it's all stuff that you have to infer whereas Pi is legitimately like a straight narrative in a lot of ways it's just Seriously, like, I, I felt like I was watching like the Firestarter video at times. Or, <laughs> um, I don't know. It's See, like... the, the thing that gets me, I think, with, with it visually more than anything is the high contrast to it. Like, maybe this is just me and like my f- age and fading eyesight, but I... It, it exhausts me to watch it, but I feel, I remember feeling this way back in 2000 when Bledsoe first had me watch this movie, um, that it's like I got tired of just looking at it after a while, and something similar happened this time where it's yeah. like, two two things dovetail. I get tired of the high contrast visually looking at it, and when the plot starts to become a little bit more fantastical um, in, in, in nature, it's like I start to like okay like I'm fine with it until like it gets like 
until there's like the the kidnapping and like all that kind of stuff like plot wise and then it's yeah. like, okay okay like cool like and but um but i think visually it's for me it's actually the high contrast i don't think i have a problem with the uh, the video uh uh music video nature of it so much but so here's the problem with the high contrast and i'm going to compare this to another movie that i i just thought of that there's probably some influence from too and it's another psychological thriller in alphaville right so mm-hmm. alphaville is very similar in terms mm-hmm. of the claustrophobic nature of the shots the sort of um what's the best way to put it like implied menace and the fact that it's more about more high-minded in terms of like how it approaches you know this conspiratorial thriller aspect of both those movies sure and it has that noir nature yeah i mean exactly they're both like like art house noir kind of or something yeah um there's another movie too called uh shit suture maybe or something Mm. i can't remember exactly but it's it's a movie Oh, this is going to drive me nuts because I can't remember the name. It, it's a movie from a sim- the similar time period, maybe a couple years before. 1993, gotten, is that what I'm looking at here? Maybe it's thriller, about... Thriller mystery. Yeah, oh. two twins who are actually played by like a black man and yep. a white man. That's a Dennis Hayes so, in it, yeah. Very similar in terms of like the way that movie's filmed as well. I'm glad that I got that name right. That was really yep. driving me nuts. Mm-hmm. The thing with the Aronofsky stuff is, and again, like I don't understand the actual techniques of filmmaking to really get the whole um reverse reverse black and white the way that it's filmed but i feel like the high contrast is kind of damaged by the graininess between that contrast like where there's almost a pixelization to the image when black meets white or like really light meets really dark and it really bothers me for some reason, and mm. I find it really difficult to watch. And Begotten is filmed in exactly the same way. I would imagine, like, pretty much on the same film stock. Yeah. But it's easier for me to watch because I guess I don't feel the need to actually see what's on the screen as much in terms of you're more just experiencing the visuals of that as opposed to, like, having to follow a narrative. And he also does a lot of things with the following shot. And this is something I want to point out. So I want to talk about this because this also happens in The Wrestler. And I think it's amazing in The Wrestler and I hate it here. Mm-hmm. So there's several times where during manic phases of um, Cohen's existence, Aronofsky is following him on the street or through. Um, there's the one scene where the man on the train is like following him. And the camera keeps cutting from the view of Cohen where you as the viewer can't see the man on the train. And then the view of like Cohen's point of view of seeing the man behind him Mm -hmm. um, and sort of almost calls into question, like, is that guy even following him? Like, or is he just hallucinating this thing because he's like obsessed Mm -hmm. Um, with the idea of being like followed and the idea of being watched and, has his own social anxiety issues or whatever. Um, and I hate it. Like I really, <laughs> it, it, again, like every time, like I watched this movie and I kind of remember thinking this at the time, it's like so many just 
little buzzbin art house music videos from the 90s like linger or whatever you know which is also inspired by alphaville but um a couple white zombie videos there's some smashing pumpkins element to it of like 1979 with the way that like they use the camera sure where they do like the fixed floating camera in front of the guy's face and it's just a lot of people love this movie when it came out and I think part of it was kind of the weirdness of the whole like numerology aspect of it and really it was kind of our first introduction I think to sort of like the Kabbalah um, philosophy because I think Madonna adopted it shortly after but it wasn't really something that was at least in my circle of people like widely talked about sure um, so it was interesting to hear about that, but mm-hmm. I hated the presentation. It felt really, it feels really pretentious to me. However, again, there's certain times where you see like the talent that's there because of the way that he films, but I don't know. I don't know. It's very, yeah, very I, art. I, yeah. I, I think it's very overall, very well written. Even if I like the plot loses me at some point, like I, I think that it's very, I think on paper it looks really good like it looks it's pretty solid um overall even if i'm not like too keen i I think some of the camera work that happens when he gets more paranoid and the more fantastical elements happen actually bother me a bit more um than early on in the movie but um and i really like the performances in this i think like all those like principles do a really good job with the material like um like goulette is a little too like dead inside at times to me that it doesn't really work but um margolis who became famous in oz and then even more famous in breaking bad um is really great as saul and i really like um shankman as uh lenny meyer Um, yeah i find all this margolis is fine i find all the other performances to be incredibly amateur to me like i i do not like them at all that's actually one of my biggest problems with the narrative of the movie is that and maybe this is on purpose, but the way that um, he portrays Cohen is so unlikable to me that, mm-hmm. but it feels unlikable just because it's, and maybe this is on purpose again, I don't know, but there's like a stiltedness to the delivery. The words feel untrue at times and look at, you know, um, requiem for a dream just a couple of years later where you have better actors delivering lines um and they're really like i think it's a much more effective piece when it comes to like naturalistic dialogue and i know that this is kind of a mystical sci-fi thriller kind of thing but i don't know it just all feels well i mean i think cohen is probably an early unspecified undiagnosed version of autism obviously like somebody on the spectrum um so i think some of that like stilted nature to what he's doing is probably somehow tim trying to mimic what he's seen in terms of people that are like highly intelligent and you know i mean like mathematical geniuses and stuff like that um so i didn't have a problem with him i think shankman i thought shankman's like fairly like does a really good job of mixing trying to be charming at times with being 
a little grating and possibly insincere. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I didn't have a problem with the performances in it. I thought that like the, the writing fit the story. Um, the story loses me. I think I have a better impression of this movie than you do overall, probably, but I don't necessarily like this movie. Um, like I can take it or leave it. I've always been when Bledsoe showed for me for the first time, I thought there was some interesting inventive stuff, but I was kind of like, meh, like on the movie overall. Um, and I think I've held that opinion. It's just like, okay, like that's, it's fine. I think it's really, I think it's an impressive first effort. Yeah. I can't remember if it was Bledsoe or, I mean, if it was Zeke or Chuck, mm -hmm. um, that was along with Bledsoe and their love for this movie. And it might've been Zeke. Yeah. Um, but I got like fucking derided for not liking it that <laughs> I, I didn't understand it. And, you know, uh -huh. you just don't get it. And it's like, no, nah, I, I, I get it. I just don't like it. But right. yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, no. And I get that. I mean, I, I, I think I think when you have other stuff coming out around this, that's so impressive. I think it it's like if so much good stuff wasn't coming out around this time from young directors, maybe this stands out more, but, um, I, um, I, I think it's an impressive first effort, but it seems more like an impressive first effort for a student film than a directorial debut. I will sure. say what's impressive though, is the fact that it was made on 135 K. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it made a decent amount of money, like 3 million, I think. And mm -hmm. again, I don't think that anyone is wrong for liking this movie. This is just not my kind of movie. So, sure. yeah. And it really feels amateurish to me. And it really feels stuck in the 1990s. Right. It's like, to me, the difference between this and Requiem is the difference between Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Where, but I mean, I don't like this movie and I like Reservoir Dogs, but in terms of my comparison between those two movies, like Reservoir Dogs feels very much like an early 90s crime thriller, just with some snappier dialogue and some interesting like um, directorial choices in terms of the whatever, like the sequence of events, um, the chronology, I guess. Um, whereas Pulp Fiction is like a revelatory, almost like timeless classic, in my opinion. Sure. And I think that, again, I think that you see some elements that show talent in this man in pie um but requiem is like leaps and bounds a much better movie and a much more important movie so yes absolutely um just to talk a little bit about this movie uh and i don't want to spend too long on it just because i know that you're not a big fan of it but it's like in terms of the film itself like do you get the sense that he that a lot of this is just his paranoia slash like growing insanity um or that like this you're supposed to is it supposed to be a mystery i guess whether this is real or not um or or do you see indications that there is an answer to whether it's him or whether it's real so i think one of the things i was reminded of watching this movie was the joker um, in the way that it's filmed and the way that the main mm. character is portrayed. And I think the Joker does a better job of it. Um, but I think there's a lot of clues in the people that he interacts with, right? So mm. um, the Indian lady that lives next door, mm -hmm. I can't remember what her name is, but is she ever real? 
does she exist sure. you know i mean she's on his doorstep and then at the end when he's embracing her and she's not actually there is that showing that she was never real to begin with um is he somebody that you know were the the, the jewish posse are those ever real people you know what i mean like right. because he sees the guy that's kind of wearing like the Hasidic outfit. That's the guy that's like bleeding across the train platform that then disappears on when he tries to find him or the, I only have eyes for you guy who only ever is there when he's in the train with him by himself and then like appears and disappears. So did he have some kind of mental disorder? Um, is it an element of like some kind of undiagnosed like worse mental illness maybe than what he's taking the pills for um i don't know so my my gut reaction is that some of it is real and some of it is exaggerated by his own mental illness Mm -hmm. so he's seeing things that aren't there based on things that he's seen that are there and he's just, it's exacerbated in his mind. Um, I think that's a more interesting interpretation. Yeah. Um, if it's all real, I think it's a more boring movie in a right. lot of ways, if that makes any sense. Because mm-hmm. then it's just a silly, Agreed. like nonsensical thriller that you really have to suspend a lot of disbelief in. And if it's fake, you know, it also, because he's doing math that, I mean, I don't know anything about math, really. Um so you wonder like how much of that is even like real um number theory or anything and i'm assuming that aronofsky did enough research where it's probably legit a lot of it's real yeah i mean Um, most of it is but yeah i don't know and it, it it's funny because like as much as i dislike this movie i also see a lot of value in talking about this movie because i think that there's number one i mean it launched the man's career and then it's just interesting to see and still very highly regarded too yeah yeah, a lot of people like it and it's fine again like i don't think anyone's wrong for thinking this is a good movie it's just not for me right um yeah but i think it's interesting to also see where his uh his evolution as a filmmaker comes from in this regard um by looking at the movies that came after and another reason why i think it's really interesting to talk about the wrestler at the same time as talking about this because they're so different and yet you can still see certain elements that kind of tie them together yeah um, especially yeah. in their main characters because i think there's a lot of similarity between cohen and um hmm. randy the ram yeah um yeah I, I i find it interesting too that it's like he in pie i mean i guess you could argue that Noah ends up doing this maybe because, but I haven't seen it. Like um, he, he doesn't really, he's not a guy who like necessarily in a lot of his movies, like leans into um, being Jewish um, or being raised. Like, you know, um, it, it seems like for what I can tan, he was like culturally Jew, but he didn't really attend temple or anything like that. Um, um, so, but he doesn't really like fall back on that much like in his movies but he does a bit here um with the kind of cultural jewish man as the main character and then like you know the the hasidic jewish group um 
but it's like i when you look at like and i and i'm not an expert on this but it's like you know i've i've read enough and you've read enough probably as well like of you know, things like philip roth and stuff like that to like have an idea of like the tro and then seeing woody allen movies and those kind of things of like seeing themes that are common among kind of jewish literature um particularly with male protagonists where it's like some of those tropes i think like end up like appearing in this which is interesting to me like so it's like there's the idea of sexual repression at times which seems to actually worsen his headaches so it's like when he hears the neighbor having sex his headaches seem to worsen and then there's right. like the scene where it's like you can hear the woman talking about like you know let mommy do this and like you know like that's it like you know what suck on mommy's nipples kind of and stuff and it's like then the headaches again get really bad so um, here's here's another interesting point i think to your is it real or not so the first time that he hears them having sex is when there's the big power outage mm -hmm. um so is that something that actually happened is it because he's so repressed that the intensity of like listening to two people like have sex with each other like the power out is just kind of like a graphical representation of his um inability to kind of cope with that i don't know so yeah, yeah uh, it, there's a ton of things like in it um uh but i don't want to prolong it too long but the doppelganger idea like the idea that he's constantly looking in the mirror a lot of times when he's like dealing with a lot of shit or he's always running to the bathroom yeah and the mirrors there um not the doppelgangers are specific to jewish culture but they appear very much in like mm. jewish literature um they're very rooted in eastern european right um, culture yeah. so I also find the ending interesting in the sense that it's like forgetting equals peace where memory plays such a, like a large theme in a lot of Jewish literature. Um, yeah. And um, of keeping memory alive, the idea that like by like drilling into his head, he's like forgotten, like how to do math and it's like release some sort of pressure or something like that. And forgetting actually is a good thing. Um, I find like a lot of stuff really interesting uh, kind of thematically or symbolically in the movie but again it doesn't hold my the, the movie itself and the plot doesn't hold my interest long enough for me to like really like want to dive into the movie in that way necessarily um i find you're right i find requiem and i find the wrestler much more interesting as character studies than i do yeah you know max cohen in this movie um <laughs> But they're, I mean, it's, it's such a, so now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if I went back and looked at it from the perspective of, like, Jewish mythology in terms of, whatever, like, demons and spirits and, you know, because you have, like, the Dybbuk, you have a doppelganger, you have, um, uh, what's the other thing? Uh the name for the anyway there's a bunch of like jewish mythology that's about um loss of self and mm -hmm. possession kind of and mm -hmm. being taken over by something and so i wonder if maybe some of that stuff is supposed to be unspoken references to like those mythological creatures um 
Yeah, so, that's I interesting. I didn't really think about that like so much. Um, but yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I, I just found that it's like for a guy who doesn't necessarily use that much in his movies, like I think he kind of starts with some things that he does know um to make you know to build characters off of and um you know it and it does like i think maybe have a a small place in like a continuity of jewish like literature and film um as as a as a character study in some way um but um but yeah i don't know my ultimate thoughts is like watching the movie like ultimately it's kind of like mad but i think it's really an interesting movie to like you said talk about um for a number of different reasons yeah. like it's a it's a good artifact i think to discuss um sure and i i think it's very firmly rooted in the time period it came from yeah. it it feels like an artifact of that time whereas i feel like requiem is much more timeless yes even though it's nothing is really setting pie in a specific time with the exception of just like that's when we grew up so we kind of can recognize some things mm-hmm. um especially like the nascent days of the internet and this microchip being this amazing prize that he could get um it's like that simpsons line that only the 12 richest princes of europe will own computers um whereas like even though requiem is set in the 1970s uh there's a very clear it, it's it's very universal in its themes and the performances and everything so yeah yeah um so yeah so what we want to do kind of was like i guess compare like you know like uh the changes over the course of like the 10 years here so in 2008 aronofsky um in the first film that he doesn't have a hand in writing uh releases the wrestler um to again a critical claim and even higher critical claim than than pi received um And, uh, you know, the stars Mickey Wark, Marissa Tomei, Evan Rachel Wood, Mark Magolis has a role in it because he has a role in all of his movies. Um, Todd and Todd Berry um, has a has a small role in it. Um, And, uh, yeah, it has a 98 from critics and an 88 from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So you want to just kind of like summarize this and um, kind of go through your thoughts of like when you first saw it and what what's changed or if anything's changed now. Uh, yes, this is a much, actually, that's not true. This is very similar in the vein that this is a a small character study on a person who is obsessed with an idea and is unwilling to let go of what they consider to be right or anyway. So it follows Randy the Ram, who is a faded 80s uh, wrestling superstar, who at one point had, it, it feels like almost like a Hulk Hogan-esque, um, like a lore to him and was like that popular. And over time, like as he's aged um, through mismanagement of his own money and poor personal choices, has gotten to the point where he's kind of a failure like his life is he he lives in a trailer he can't afford to pay his rent um he has no relationship with his daughter uh who's a grown woman um his only real connection to another human being outside of like wrestling performances is his trips to a local strip club where he's obsessed with an aging stripper played by marissa tomei (laughs) so a lot of the movie is really just about 
kind of following Randy through his day-to-day life and watching him fail kind of and um, fall short of his own aspirations and disappoint himself and disappoint others um, and recognize at a point that, you know, he, he has a heart attack midway through the movie <coughs> where he's told that he's no longer able to wrestle because it could kill him. And it feels like it's actually a life-changing moment for him because he turns and kind of moves into, like, he becomes a a deli counter worker and he seems to really enjoy it. Um, But that allure of the ring and the allure of, like, the crowd is too much, especially after he um, reconciles with his daughter but then, like, forgets to meet her and she sort of disowns him and then he kind of pours out his heart to the Marissa Tomei character and she rejects him um, and he realizes that the only place that he's ever felt like love or connection with other humans is in the ring um, so the movie ends with him returning to uh, have a match with an opponent that he, he had a lot of popular matches with in the 80s and it's the 20 year anniversary of their last encounter and um, that's how he goes out and the movie implies that um, that he dies in the ring performing his signature move, which is a basically like a jumping double axe handle off the top rope kind of thing called the Ram Jam. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Aronofsky is confirmed, even though he cuts before the end of that match of just him leaping off the top, that the, the idea is that, he's, that he dies. Um, well, you because you can hear the audience reaction is not like cheers. It's like gasps right, and sure. screams and... Um, kind of it's really a heartbreaking scene because Tomei realizes too late that she's actually like attracted to this man and she mm-hmm. can have a good life with them and she goes to sort of connect with them and he's already committed to going into the ring and he realizes that no matter what like that's the only place he's ever going to find the happiness that he you know he's looking for yeah um but it's it's interesting because so um Mickey Rourke plays the um, Randy the Ram character. Um, It's a brilliant performance. Um, It's very, it's it's nuanced. Um, It's sad and frustrating at the same time. Uh, There's elements of hope, like where you really feel like maybe he can get his life together, and then just falls back into making what you understand is the same mistakes he's made his whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's it's really it's. So the thing I found the most interesting, and I never would have made this connection before, um, because I watched these movies so far apart, you know, like I watched Pi when it came out and I watched The Wrestler when it came out. And I never really even thought about Pi when I was watching The Wrestler, um, because personally, I just associate Aronofsky more with Requiem for a Dream because I enjoy Mm -hmm. um, that movie more. But Randy and Cohen are pretty much the same person, just different obsessions and different quality of life and you know different circumstances but they're both people who aren't really good at interacting with other other humans in a normal setting Mm -hmm. but in the setting of their own obsessions they're rock stars you know like they're people that are highly respected and highly sought after and um even though Randy doesn't make a lot of money, you know, neither does Cohen. Cohen's impoverished, Mm -hmm. like he's, you know, jobless. Mm -hmm. Randy's the same way, you know, he's working part-time at a grocery store just to make enough money to pay his rent so he can go on the weekends and wrestle. 
Right. And it's, you know, the heart attack that sort of stops him from doing that, but ultimately his own fuck ups that cause, you know, his estrangement from his daughter and then um, his rejection by uh, the Tomei character just put both of them are pushed into an element where basically by sacrificing themselves is the only way they can find peace you know with cohen sacrificing his mental acuity by trepanning himself and that's the moment that he has peace and um randy realizing that he's got to give it his all in this last match and you know he dies and that's the only way that he can find peace because it's the only thing that helps him stop is um you know death basically because he'll keep going he can't help himself yeah I mean, and I there, think there, there's an element to I think all of his like male leads of like some sort of obsession or addiction. I mean, obviously, self destruction like, too. Yeah, I think right, yeah, sure. Um, but it's such a number one. I mean, so we we've talked about this on the podcast a number of times, but Chris and I both really enjoy wrestling, and at various stages of our lives, um, we've watched wrestling pretty pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, including currently where we're both, you know, into modern wrestling to an extent. Um, this portrayal is, it feels so true to life because you can watch these older wrestlers that we grew up with in the, the eighties and nineties. So you're, you're Jake, the snakes, um, Lex Luger, uh, Hogan to an extent. Right. Um, even people like Jeff Jarrett and Sting, like people mm-hmm. who just can't stop. Yeah. There's so much reality there. And the fact that he's not a bad person, you know, he's respected by the people he works with. Not only is he not a bad person, like he's the nicest damn guy in the world. He's always caring. He's always supportive of anybody he talks to. Like, even if there's, there's like a weird obsession, he really cares about Cassidy. You know, like he's he's looking out for her, even if there's like a little bit of toxic masculinity in it. He's always looking out for her. like like he's trying to always do largely the right thing around the people that he's with, like especially like got like the young guys like, you know, that he's working with in the matches. Right. And, and they you know, respect him. Like yeah, he's somebody yeah. that people learn from. And but he goes in. It's always greeting people like when he goes in everywhere, right. like no matter who the service person is, he's always saying hi. Like, you know, he's like even like his his drug dealer. He's like, like, you know, building up in some. Oh, ways. yeah. You, like, look, you, know, you look good. Like, you right. Look- yeah. It's like he's he's just this really kind, supportive, caring dude, ultimately at his core, I think. And um, it's really just a shame, you know, but he's also somebody that he's always putting himself in front of other people like even though he's able to talk to people it's it's about what he wants and what makes him feel good mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the night that he um gets rejected by cassidy and then goes to the right um the club where he meets the young girl and he ends up having sex with them. and that's one of the most surreal scenes in the movie is the firefighter sex thing with this woman right. that's like obsessed with firefighters uh-huh um uh-huh. but he does cocaine and then he goes home and sleeps and he oversleeps and misses a date with his daughter right and everything comes down to the fact that you know i mean it's one of the most telling lines in the movie and i i think it's like one of the things that makes us such an amazing character um and actually he makes him more humanized than cohen even though i think they're very similar in terms of like their 
personalities is the line where he says to Cassidy, I always tried to forget you. I always tried to pretend like you didn't exist. So even in the moment where he's trying to reconnect with this, his daughter, mm-hmm. he still shows that it was his selfishness and sure. his desire to feel okay about abandoning his child that put him in the position where, um, you know, he could go off and like travel the world and wrestle. And it's, it's really amazing writing in the sense that they don't ever tell you everything about any character in the movie or any situation. Mm-hmm. Like you don't really get the idea of what happened to the mom, you know, what happened in the interim years when he was out on the road, like what happened to her, you know? And right. They imply that she's a lesbian. I don't think they imply she's a lesbian. They, well, he, he suspects it, and they never really give a definitive answer, but you, you suspect as well. After yeah, yeah, hearing yeah. I mean, line, right. But they don't tell when, you, like, absolutely. When the pre- presumptive girlfriend walks out on her, mm-hmm. you get the idea that, but all that stuff is so subtle. And it's just about those performances. And Evan Rachel Wood is great performance. Mm-hmm. Um, Marissa Tomei is fantastic yes, performance. Yeah. Honestly, Tomei is one of the better um, character, like female character actors, I think, that maybe doesn't even get the credit she deserves because she's so attractive and... And ageless, um, almost? Yeah, and because we've known her for so long. Sure. And because also, you know, Aunt May in the Marvel movies. Right, yeah. The Spider-Man movies. But this is a really, like, brave, like, raw performance from her. Um, it's a very a very similar role. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but um, movie she was in with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke is in that movie. Maybe is that the one where there's brothers? Yeah, before the devil knows you're yeah, yeah before yeah. the devil knows you're dead. Yep. Um, similar and very yeah. intense, um, fantastic mm-hmm. performance by her. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, so. But yeah, going back to your, because you were originally talking about like the idea of the aging wrestler, us being in the wrestling and like, because I, I do want to pick up on that thread a little bit that you were talking about. So I think I cut you off like when you were. Well, I just think it's. Whereas Pi is so hyperkinetic and unrealistic in a lot of ways, you have this really grounded universe in the wrestler. Um, <laughs> you know, that kind of like shows the business in the sense of these men that are, you know, enemies in the ring, like sitting there talking about their matches and complimenting each other and um, just generally treating each other well. Uh, there's an amazing scene in The Wrestler where it's it's juxtaposed against the scene earlier in the movie where um, the Ram is going into a, a, like a big bingo hall or something to wrestle Mm -hmm. and it follows him in and he's going through the crowd and you know it's a very traditional like if you're familiar with professional wrestling a very traditional way to like show a wrestler enter an arena and kind of introduce him and later in the movie when he's agreed to um take the role of like the deli attendant so he can have full-time work at this grocery store Mm -hmm. it does the same thing you know following him down uh through the the back back parts of the store through the offices down through the stock rooms mm-hmm. you know into the back way to go into the deli and even the way that they do the 
the sound design and everything still kind of like imitates the sound of the crowd yeah. outside of the arena like somebody walking mm-hmm. through the backstage like through the three entryway um so yeah just really uh so yeah and then when it, it ends when he opens like the plastic curtain that's yeah. like hanging from in the deli like you know yeah it's it's a brilliant scene like yeah and still is trying to make himself larger than life in a lot of ways in terms of mm-hmm. the way he interacts with customers and the way he carries himself and uh, it puts him in a role where like he's not used to in terms of customer service where people are uh like especially that old woman like just kind of sure. treating him like shit and mm-hmm. so but uh, but at the same time and and i think it's interesting that he doesn't want people to know that he's the wrestler necessarily oh right because the one guy that's that's what basically causes him to break down sure yeah um is the man like realizing that he's looking at randy the ram and just not yeah not letting it go yeah so here's the to me this is the the maturation of aronofsky mm-hmm. is that there's a lot of similar camera movements in the wrestler as there is in pie um he follows care he likes to follow characters he likes to um shoot behind things or over the shoulder or um tracking shots and stuff but mm-hmm. the wrestler is such a an intimate character study whereas even though i think pie is at its core even though it's classified as a psychological thriller or whatever pie is its core is an intimate character study of this man who just happens to be paranoid <laughs> right but they're so different because to me max cohen never feels like a real character whereas randy the ram feels like a real character and i i brought up the wrestler thing because maybe maybe that's just because i've watched so many documentaries and interviews and shoot videos where Mm -hmm. it's these wrestlers talking about their lives and kind of talking about um what's their 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 mistakes and right you see them yeah and sort I, of, I, oh, go ahead. I I think another thing that to just tie into your point about like what changes here is that um, and part of it's the paranoid nature of the Cohen character versus this kind of like slow, not dim-witted, but like um, kind of like slow reaction, kind of like more like mellow character in the Ram at times, like you know. But it's like visually he and this is wrestling advice is that like, you know, when, you know, slow down. And when you think you slow down, slow down even more, it's like, he's done that visually in this, um, where it's like, it's too fucking quick and it's too like, you know, everything's shaky. Everything's like, you know, like moving too fast in pie. And some of that has to do with the character and the story and the, and the genre, but like, in this it's slow it's methodical yeah you get time to marinate in the scene itself and the character to where it's like you can you know make a connection to the character in some way even if you're frustrated by them you care about that person and i think he just slows down in general here and it's not as damn kinetic and frantic and stuff like that to where it's like you really get to spend time with these people and 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 i think that's something he learned (laughs) 
um because it's like you start seeing like a little bit later like black swan and even like the frenetic nature mother at the times it's like he slows down in all of it and um i think that allows the viewer more access to the movie um that's all i want to say about yeah the changes i saw so they're really interesting to watch in conjunction with each other um i mean i think that requiem is a much larger movie than either of these movies Uh, these are both very small movies um but just yeah i mean to me the wrestler is maybe almost underrated in some ways uh i think that at least in my own like estimation because i forget about it sometimes but amazing performance like he seriously is the performance of a lifetime for work yeah yeah um and it really captures the feeling of you know there's the scene where they're sitting he's signing autographs and they're just in this little like rec hall after he's had a heart attack and he's trying to just earn a little bit of money but not even that he's trying to come as close to the world that he loves as he can where he still thinks that it might kill him right he gets back in the ring and it's really it's heartbreaking because he has to basically kill himself in order to find a a measure of peace. And he's, you know, goes out in the way that he has lived his entire life, which is just in front of a crowd and trying to please other people. And yet had the opportunity to have a close connection with his daughter and a relationship with this, you know, attractive woman and just can't do it because he can't get past him the idea of doing what he feels like makes him the happiest yeah there's a very selfish nature to the character despite him being kind of a good-natured person to some degree selfishness usually triumphs over that good nature um i i want to bring up too considering this is a movie about wrestling and i think that's why maybe it's underrated a little bit is because of the subject matter um uh, it's like it's like it's it's odd for us to like sit here and admit i think like for compared to a lot of people like you know that we like will watch professional wrestling um most people still kind of like oh that fake shit or like oh like you know that's so dumb or like you know um so i think the subject matter of this movie keeps it underrated a little bit um at times because a lot of people just won't watch it probably but i from a wrestling standpoint i don't know if you've like looked into it but um you know like roddy piper was a big fan of this movie um and piper like actually like after he he was at the premiere and like broke down um in tears um with mickey rourke about like feeling like he was represented finally um in some way like and then there's people that have criticized jim Cornette, like the famous manager and now podcaster um has criticized the movie of saying that it's kind of exaggerated and showing like the worst aspects of professional wrestling. Bret Hart sees merit in this, this as being the story of some people, but not the majority of people in wrestling. Um, And I think, I think he used the word clairvoyant to describe works performance. And, um, but said that this is like, kind of like a skewed look at professional wrestling. And I, I, you've watched all these videos and like i have this is a pretty damn accurate story for somebody that 
wrestled in the 80s and the 90s. Right. I, I don't think it's an accurate portrayal of wrestling today. Right. I definitely think it's a much more accurate portrayal of wrestling probably more in the early 2000s rather than like the later 2008. So right. not to get too much into whatever, like business, I guess, but <laughs> um, they use Ring of Honor. They use CZW, which are both real right. wrestling promotions. They use a ton, like 30 actual like wrestlers mm-hmm. who were either indie wrestlers or um, early WWE wrestlers at the time. So um, a bunch of people that went on to gain much more fame in terms of like working in NXT and WWE and mm-hmm. um, AEW in some cases. Right. Um, but I really think that like you look at like Jake Roberts, like you can't yes. tell me that Randy the Ram isn't. I mean, he's probably a like even like the relationship with the family and the health and everything. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, Roberts was able to kind of find um, some measure recover yeah you know and but it's very similar but yeah these outdated wrestlers all it goes everything that it goes through like the the steroids to keep up with everybody you know um you know the alcohol and the drug use like that's still going on like kind of on a pretty consistent basis and then it's just like the wrestling stuff where it's like there's the constant pain as you age of right. like, you know, the, and, and the idea that you have to cut yourself in the ring to get a crowd reaction. Oh yeah. That you uh, got to, um, like he has that match with Necro Butcher and Necro Butcher is a real, yes. Yeah. Um, hardcore, like extreme wrestler. That, yeah. Uh, he was on AEW last year, right? Is that true? No, not Necro Butcher. Wasn't, I don't think I saw a match with him somewhere anyway. Yeah. Um, and they really like they show like that aspect of it, like these people that have to to satisfy like the bloodlust of these ridiculous fans have to put themselves through plate glass windows and hit each other with um, uh, staple guns, and it's just crazy. And like it ends up leading to him having the heart attack because that match that he has where he gets like seriously injured in a lot of ways and loses a lot of blood, but. And probably his lifestyle, anyway. Um, but but yeah, but I, I think it's a pretty damn <laughs> accurate representation of certain like people that weren't necessarily Hulk Hogan sure. um, uh, in, in the '80s. And I and I think to try to for those people to try to like you know defend the business like as this is like an oddity uh, the this the story of the business. It's it's pretty. It's actually pretty accurate for that time period um of, from, of what happened to a lot of right. these people from what we understand from watching like certain shoot videos and listening to people talk sure and seeing the death tolls yeah <laughs> um yeah uh it's it, it, so i i think it's unfounded to to try to criticize this and act like it wasn't like um a pretty realistic tale in some ways um yeah. and, uh, anyway. and it makes it extremely sad like to watch like you know even more so um fantastic movie that's definitely worth watching so yeah we talked about this a little bit at one point like about this movie uh when we were doing the quick cage like you, you know that like nick cage was originally like uh the the studio wanted cage to to play this role right that's interesting yeah i, I do kind of remember that i yeah. think i pushed it out of my uh... <laughs> 
Right. And, and and he eventually says he dropped out because he couldn't get into the shape that it would need to be to play this kind of aging wrestler. Um, but it's really that Aronofsky like won out because he always wanted Mickey Work to play Randy the Ram. Um, and he was basically fighting with the studio, but like had to kind of go along with the studio with the idea maybe Cage can do this, and Cage eventually just kind of like dropped out um uh of it like kind of gracefully. Um uh which I think is fortunate um here. Oh yeah. Uh but yeah. the other thing is it's famous about the this role is Hogan tried to claim on Howard Stern that he was the original person that was supposed to play this role. Um and um Aronofsky came out and said that um that is absolutely not true that he was never once considered for this role but hogan out there out there selling um right <laughs> always um oh, last thing i'll ask you is, do you know whose body was used for randy the ram in the 80s like in the pictures did you recognize it at all was it like rude or um no, I don't know. Who was it? Luger. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, that makes yep. sense. I mean, that's yeah. that's basically who he is. Yeah. Yeah. Mickey Rourke is in fantastic shape in this movie, too. Absolutely. Like he's, yeah. he's cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, amazing performance. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. Like, uh, I, 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 is there any role that even comes close for him? Like to this, hmm. do you think? That's an interesting question. Let's see. Oh man, Wikipedia making me click multiple things and one money from you. Always. They haven't asked this time. <laughs> hmm. No, it's it's like the quick cage. It's all over again. You got to click another link for the filmography. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that's close. Um, right. So I would argue that, um, like, Angel Heart is a really good performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pope of Greenwich Village is a really good performance. Right. Um, he's good in Body Heat. Oh, he's good in Kill Shot. Uh, I mentioned that on some podcasts yeah. at some point, but he's good in Kill Shot as well. Even though I wasn't a big fan of watching it, I thought he was really good in Heaven's Gate. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just a lot yeah. of crap. Yeah. Uh, like Man on Fire. It, it's funny he's in that Domino movie. My name is right. Domino Harvey. Right. Do you like I him? I like him. Marv? Like the did you mention Sin City? Yeah, it's fine, but I mean it's it's an unrecognizable performance. Sure, sure. Yeah. The problem with that movie is that it's such a love letter to the comics mm -hmm. and such an exact representation of the comics that um the actors get lost in the performances because they're basically just emulating yeah the Frank Miller characters. Yeah, the only person that really stands out to me is um. Clive Owen, honestly, for some reason, even though, again, the Dwight stuff is very accurate to the comics. For some reason, he stands out to me. But, um, all right. So, any any final thoughts you had, Mister One? No, I thought it was um, 
I don't know that we'll ever get this chance again because I don't know how many directors have whatever, like five, ten sure. years separating where you can do it where the, the same year will mark the anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's interesting. Maybe it's something we do in the future to compare movies from the same director. Yeah. Maybe early career, later career. Like, I think mm-hmm. it, I would like to talk about maybe, um, you know, Rushmore versus, uh, I don't know, like Grand Budapest or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. there's a lot of similarities to them, but there's also like a huge amount of differences. Right. Um, P.T. Yeah. Anderson would probably be the most interesting to talk about, like, like Hard Eight, which we never talked about, and then like looking at something later. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Have we ever talked about that? We haven't talked about there will be blood ever on a podcast, have we? No, it's never found it's a never, place. Yeah. But I mean, that's an interesting comparison because that's definitely. I don't know. It's so hard because Phantom Thread is so good, and I love mm-hmm. Licorice Pizza. And I don't know. I just I, I don't know what I think his his crowning achievement is. But there will be blood as close to it. Yeah. God, that year with There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men is crazy. That, like those two. Yes. I is. can't believe how good No Country um, still is. Like I, I really, yeah. I really love yeah. that movie. Uh, no, no country is like low key, like one of the top five movies of that decade to me. I think, like, without doubt, like, um, I mean, just for the um, Tommy Lee Jones uh, soliloquy at the end about the dream with his father on horseback in oh, the yeah. snow and shit. I mean, yeah. that's like chilling and precognitive and just <laughs> perfectly delivered. It's it's really good. Sure. Uh, yeah, maybe that's something to think about too. At some point, maybe is um, comparing Blood Simple to something like a crime movie from later that we've never discussed, or something like that. Since like there's there's stuff of there those uh, those guys that maybe will never make lists. So, um, all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed. Um, we'll be back, you know, um, you know, with top five list, obviously. But like I said, we are going to uh, start doing return slots uh, pretty much every month um, as as we continue the podcast now. So, um, you know, did you explain any... where the term return slot came from? We did like last year, like mm. when we first started these. Like you, I made you explain it, but um, yeah, um, but. Uh, it's it's a reference to the old VHS slots that you would like put movies and I guess DVD later DVD's on, right, but, yeah. um, but that you would like put them back into like to return the movies. But um, yeah, you did explain it at some point, but I think only um, only only true like uh, two guys aficionados like might like remember like like that like you know twenty second explanation on some episode somewhere. It's probably Lost Boys. Is probably where it happened. Um, is my guess. Yeah, that's probably if you go true. back probably like in August or whatever of 2022, um, somewhere in there. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week. Yep. Deuces.